Hi everyone, it's Chris Lasarenko from Revolutions Per Movie. The show is a completely independent affair, so if you feel like supporting the show, the best way is to go over to patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie, where in exchange for your support, you can get weekly bonus Revolution Per Movie episodes, stickers, membership cards, upcoming guests include Anne Magnuson of Bong Water, Bob Burt of Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore, Jerry Casali of Devo, and Homer Flynn of The Cryptid Corporation, representing the band The Residents. So please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Enjoy the show. My guest this week is Max Beasley. Max is an L.A.-based comedian and filmmaker, best known for the work on The Last Open Mic at the End of the World on Adult Swim and HBO Max. They've also appeared frequently on Who Charted, The Todd Glass Show, Double Threat, and The Best Show with Tom Sharpley. Their short film, John Tarzan, was selected to multiple film festivals and was celebrated for the performance of its lead actor, Demorge Brown. It is my pleasure to welcome to Revolutions Per Movies, Max Beasley. Hey, thank you so much. So good to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I I was just listening to the soundtrack to the movie we're going to talk about all day. I wanted to ask where you came across this movie because you are young. (laughs) And where where did you discover the movie? Well, I'm a big kind of movie nerd. Uh, I actually went to film school and originally wanted to be a filmmaker. And then comedy just kind of happened. So I would say that like movies and, and music are sort of two things that I like and value and pay more attention to than comedy. (laughs) And it just so happens that in this movie, my musical interests and my film interests like completely align. I think I probably discovered it. I probably just discovered it on streaming in high school or something and thought it looked interesting. Um, I always wanted to make it like a Bowie movie or a glam rock movie when I was a teenager. And so when I, when I heard about this one and then I watched it, it was kind of like everything that I wanted it to be, you know, it's, it's kind of a wild choice because you are the first person on this podcast who picked a music-based narrative film mm. versus a documentary. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the options I, I put out to people. I was like, it could be Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Right, right. Or it could be this. And um, so it's kind of a great choice. So you were familiar with, you know, Lou Reed's music and Iggy's music by the time you'd seen this film? Yeah, I would say... Um... It's interesting because I was more into like T-Rex and stuff like that, I think, when I first saw it. And then now I'm like obsessed with Eno and Roxy music and um, John Cale and stuff. So the movie has kind of grown with me, too, where like even though I've seen it multiple times and I've heard all the music, I'm kind of catching up to the music in the movie, if that makes sense. It does. So I saw this film when it first came out in the theater after he'd made Poison and he had made Safe, which I thought was incredible. I, I love both those films, but Safe just, again, it divided the audience, but I just, as somebody who suffers from severe allergies yeah. <laughs> and my and my fear of cults, yeah. it, it was like a horror movie for me. Totally. So when I heard he was gonna make Velvet Goldmine, it seemed like, oh, Todd Haynes is a genre hopper. He's He's gonna be, like he's not going to stick to one type of film. He's already made safe, mm-hmm. and you know his next film, uh, 
Far From Heaven, I believe, was the next film. Yeah, I love that movie. It's incredible. So different than this. Yeah. But I, I, I think it's an ambitious film that when I first saw it, I just had too much um, anticipation for it being the perfect storytelling yeah. for glam rock. To me, it feels like a Ken Russell film. It definitely has an experimental streak to it that I really admire because you don't really see that too much anymore, you know, uh, to be so formalist in the approach of the biopic. And he later did that in the Dylan one, too. But yes, it uh, it kind of transcends typical biopic or biography movie. And it to me, it Velvet Goldman kind of feels more like Boogie Nights or something where it's more about the era than it is about um, the story or the characters. You know, it's sort of like a through one person you sort of see a time and a place. Yes, I agree. I think when I was younger, I just got so caught up in identity and music. And, oh, this is the one, this is the first time they're kind of telling a fictitious tale this era. And then, you know, you, you start picking it apart. It's not a, it's not really a music film in a lot of ways. Yeah, I learned to appreciate it way more. Um, it is a pretty substantial budgeted experimental film that is trying to be kind of a glam rock citizen Kane mystery too. Yeah. yeah. It's got a lot going on, which I, I admire that in movies. A lot of my favorite movies are like that, but definitely I can see how it could feel overstuffed to some. Yeah. He's trying different things. There's element of silent film in it. There's element of, you know, rock music, videos there's a science fiction thread in it a lot of the dialogue is taken from uh various poets and oscar wilde quotes and right out of the gate you the attitude is right there when you know a spaceship yeah. flies over and oscar wilde is planted on the ground as an orphan yeah. with a green emerald attached to them and then really quickly yeah. this is in the first minute he the, a school teacher is asking everybody what they want to be. And he stands up and he says, I want to be a pop star. And right there, you're like, okay, I know what I'm in for. Right. Totally. It's the perfect setup to the movie. And as soon as I saw that, the first time I saw that, I was so blown away by that. Cause I had never seen anything like that before. And I was so obsessed with the Bowie mythos and everything as a teenager that, uh, and, you know, and the whole thing of him being an alien and everything, I was like, okay, so this is this is what this is going to be. This is pretty cool. It starts out also with uh, a title card basically saying, although what you are about to see is a work of fiction, it should nevertheless be played at maximum volume. So at the same time, it is a total love letter to some of the most amazing music that's ever been made. I agree. I always say and maintain that um 70s but especially early 70s is the peak of rock music and uh all of the music on the soundtrack of this are examples of that it's it's just it's probably the best soundtrack ever it's definitely up there it's pretty loaded it's it's pretty crazy <laughs> and the visuals that he attaches to the songs he chooses too are really iconic like the uh the cosmic dancer sequence and stuff Yes. So do you have any trouble with the actors who have sing on the soundtrack and them not being able to get the rights to 
like you know the original version of the song yeah i mean yeah i think uh, it would have been better if that wasn't the case but i think that the production design and the wardrobe and and everything was so good that it sold it even though you know we knew that they weren't the ones who wrote this song it i was able to look past that but i'm i'm kind of forgiving about that stuff probably more forgiving than a musician would be you know as i got older i i relaxed all that <laughs> i think when you're younger you're like how can somebody try to even be a bowie or an yeah. iggy um in a film totally but i will say this ewan mcgregor he gives it his all it's an a plus performance he yeah. is and his vocals are pretty awesome in tvi it was kind of a hard, hard mark to hit because all these people are so iconic visually and aesthetically and and through their attitude that someone going out there and falling around on the floor like Iggy <laughs> Pop, yeah, it, it could really ring false. But I think he kind of does a beautiful job of mm -hmm. kind of splitting the difference between being the actor Ewan McGregor and yeah. and the character he's playing in this film based on Iggy. Yeah, I think the I think the actors are trying to channel the spirits of the people that were the inspirations, which I think is why it works. Is they're not trying to be, they're not trying to be that person, but kind of channel the, the the energy of that person. But also, I think what helps it is that a lot of the backing musicians were like real guys, like um, you know they had like guys from Radiohead and Pulp and stuff like helping out, which I think helped. And even the backing band of uh, Kurt Wilde, who is the Iggy Pop character, was Mark Arm mm -hmm. and Thurston Moore. And yeah, it I was think just... Mike Watt was involved too. Yes. I remember that. Yes. And so it's it's pretty spot on in terms of, you know, going to throw a dart and hit who you want to be on this thing. It's pretty star-studded. Yeah, I think it's kind of lovely. And I know that Pulp also have a song on here. They do a cover, but originally yeah. um, he wanted uh, for Jack Ferry, uh, he wanted Jarvis Cocker. And Jack Ferry oh, is cool. kind of the, kind of a, a little bit of a through line through the film in terms of um, the, the character who was always just kind of there at every moment right. that this world is changing. Like, was there pre-glitter pre-glam and was also at the death of glam, you know, right. celebrating that as well. Well, I have a question for you about this movie. Yes. Because I wasn't, I was little when this came out, so I don't remember it. So was it like a big movie when it came out? Like what, did it have a lot of marketing and buzz or not? Cause it only made, I think like a few million dollars. It was a pretty big bomb, I think. Right. It was it did not do well theatrically um and it, it was a bomb that's why i wanted to ask you where you saw it if totally found a second life on home video mm -hmm. and uh, i remember at the store um it was out all the time and often very overdue <laughs> the people who like this film like to keep it yeah and and really live with it for a while well it's a cool movie to just kind of have on i mean it's like a great movie to have on in the background of a party or something just because the visuals are so interesting and 
it's such a floaty sort of vibe that you can just kind of tune in and out of it when you want, you know, to an extent, I think. Yeah, there's scenes in it that are basically uh, elaborate stylized music videos. And I copied down here one of the parts from the script um, where Brian is the alien. And it's Mm -hmm. basically essentially a music video, but the script is really tight from the page to the screen. But yeah, it says uh, London Rooftops, Dusk. Uh, It's a painting in a Disney close-up. Kurt Wilde winks to the camera and turns. Zoom out as he leaps into a chimney stack against a painted backdrop. The zoom continues, revealing the rooftop vista in a gilded frame and hanging in an empty white space. The zoom out is joined by a track which reveals Brian viewing the painting behind a red velvet rope. When revealed, he turns to the camera and starts to sing, and in a close-up, he plucks the pink rosebud from off-screen and sings a verse to it. It blooms in his hands, and he steps back from the painting and begins the mime walk, staying in place while the view of the painting passes. And then there's an extreme close-up of a tiny Victorian dollhouse on a white pedestal and a fast zoom out, revealing Brian standing beside the pedestal, now full-sized. Now it's an interior dollhouse drawing room. Through a veil of sequin gauze, a shimmering creature looks up. It's Brian, dressed as a green alien. We follow him as he creeps past the mist of gauze into the light of the room. Suddenly he jolts. One enormous Brian glares through the window and on and on and on. But it's all there. That's I can't believe that. That is, uh, well, first of all, I guess maybe he must have known that he would have a budget for this movie because <laughs> to write that expecting to get that made is pretty intense. Like I, some of the stuff in there, I wouldn't even know how to achieve much less how expensive it would be to achieve, you know? Yeah. I think it was made in the pretty golden age of nineties indie U S filmmaking still. Um, totally. At the video store, I had posters around the store since I opened it in 1996, I thought every year, I'll just change these 20 posters to reflect every year. And um, at a certain point, I just stopped because I was like, well, there's Happiness is up there. <laughs> the Kingdom by Lar- Lars von Trier was up oh, there. City of Lost Children, Office Killer, yeah. um, My Brother's Keeper, and Velvet Goldmine. And I just was like, this feels pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good mix of movies. So that's the kind of stuff that was coming out then, you know, like, let's make happiness. And we don't have a problem with the budget or we're not worried about the audience. And this kind of fit into that. Yeah, um, yeah just a, it was only a few years where that was happening. All those guys who made like a big film festival hit and then their next movie they kind of got free reign to do whatever they want and then that ends up being like most of the best movies of the of that decade yeah the indie section i had eventually just stopped it, it was harder to find <laughs> yeah. a filmmaker that made more than two films in in what was called independent and it was starting getting harder and harder to classify what that genre would be because the budgets were getting big Velvet Goldmine, is it really an indie film? Yeah. It is compared to, you know, a lot of other things that were being made. No. Well, it's like a mid-budget movie, which they don't really do anymore unless it's like a comedy. But, it, you know, I think it, well, it probably had like a a similar budget to the kind of movies that like Paul Thomas Anderson makes now or something, you know, where it's like a 20 to $40 million. So it's like a good amount of money, but it's not you know, everything in it is handcrafted. It's not like a CGI spectacle or anything. 
and like you were saying in the script too with like the use of matte paintings and and techniques like that that you really don't even see used anymore barely kind of gives it the classic film texture you know that i think is one of the reasons why it has lasted and it doesn't feel dated you know todd haynes you know he said in an interview that he had a very modest goal for this film uh, he said, I want to turn every gay person straight and every straight person gay. <laughs> it's interesting because when I, I probably saw this movie in high school and I was, I thought that I was a straight cis man when I saw the movie. And it was probably one of the first like m movies with major queer themes that I had even really seen probably at that point. Um, and and it has, you know, it's it's not graphic, but it doesn't shy away from that stuff in the film. And so I think seeing it was, looking back, I think it was kind of like an eye-opening experience for me in terms of, like, discovering my own queerness and things like that. And definitely re-watching it over time and, and growing with the movie and, uh, you know, it's speaking to me in different ways, but... For me, per, like on a personal level, just with my own gender and sexuality, I always have um, been interested in and um, compelled by that sort of early 70s glam, uh, sort of non-binary, gender neutral, ambig ambiguous thing. Um, and I think that that sort of fits into how I feel a lot of the time about my own presentation. So to see all of that depicted was really cool, uh, especially seeing it as a kid. And then, you know, now obviously I know a lot more about that stuff, but um, yeah. And I, I think that this is like one of the, one of the movies that like young queer people should watch or like Todd Haynes said, like young closeted kids. Like, I think this would be a really important movie for them. And, um, I just don't ever really hear people talking about it. I feel like it has so much to offer. But I just don't really ever hear people talking about it. Yeah, I don't either. Um, so that's why I was really happy you picked it because I could revisit it. It had been about 10 years since I'd seen it. Mm -hmm. I've probably seen it four or five times over the years. Yeah, um, too, I think. I came across a review in, from Art Forum, mm -hmm. and it's really weird. Um, it says... It's to this audience and its young young successors that Haynes wants to offer a history they've never been able to lay claim to. He makes a political statement and at the same time indulges his fantasies by pretending that these performers were really gay. And that's in italics. It's still a little startling to see men kiss passionately on screen, but that's all. About the only thing Brian and Kurt's kisses really accomplish is guaranteeing that the movie won't reach the kids in the malls who might adore it. The sex feels like a gay artist statement, obligatory and earnest, and as the movie dragged through its second hour with too much torture and far too many ideas, I couldn't help that Haynes as one director, a little cheapness wouldn't hurt. Huh. Yeah, it's basically saying all of the sincerity and perspective and experience that you have that you want to express, why don't you dumb it down so yeah. that everybody can like your movie instead? Maybe for some people, the 
the forbiddenness of it. Maybe for me, scrolling through streaming as a kid and seeing something that looked gay like this and, and kind of being like, oh, this is, I shouldn't watch this, I think is part of the allure of it too. I totally agree. I totally agree. That's why I think that review is really wrong. I mean, uh, I've, you know, movies like Hedvig and the Angry Ranch also found mm -hmm. audiences mm -hmm. uh, for people who, uh, a combination of music and queerness and art and fashion. And a lot of, a lot of cult movies are a lot of, these types of movies are kind of queer in some way uh, or have that element to them. And I wonder if maybe that's what makes them sort of these at home hits is that these queer people are looking for something to watch and they come across this and it, and it looks scary, but interesting. And so they decided to put it on, but it's not something that you would ever be seen going out to see in a theater or anything. If you're if you're at a certain point in your queer journey, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a scene in the movie where Arthur, who is the Christian Bale character, is watching. Um, he's watching Brian Slade, who's the, played by Jonathan Reese Meyer, who is the Ziggy character, um, talk about his sexuality and his his uh, bisexuality, and he stands up and is saying, "That's me." Dad, that's me. And he's screaming at the TV, pointing. And it's pretty powerful. And then it cuts, you know, it's just all in his head. Yeah. But I, I thought that scene was pretty amazing. Absolutely. And uh, for that kid, it was like seeing an alien. Yeah. And that's also the interesting thing about all these guys, a lot of them from this era, from Britain, I mean, and you know what, like what Pink Floyd, the wall is about and stuff, but this era that they came from was so like almost dystopian, like, yes. you know, gray, uh, working class, like serious, bleak existence. And then they, I think that's another thing that this movie shows is all of the color that they bring into the environment that they're in, in that the opening when they're walking through the streets with the needle in the camel's eye and just all the color of the outfits yes. it's popping in this sort of drab British environment, you know, they play a lot into, you know, the kids being bullied in school and just kind of the oppressive nature of, you know, fifties uh, and sixties Britain. Um, yeah. And then really rock and roll um changing the course and with you know the mods coming in there's that sequence where um you know they say that mods are the the first true dandies of pop yeah the, the mods kind of set the stage for that in terms of rebellion against their parents and things like that you know like i like the quadrophenia movie like which would be another one that would be good to do on this podcast yeah but uh, um, yeah, like that, that rebellion, that natural teenage rebellion manifesting in, uh, oh, I'm going to wear makeup or I'm going to wear a dress or, you know, it's so interesting. It's such an interesting cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Everyone looks so fucking cool. Yeah. That, that recent Bowie doc, the footage and that was cool. The concert footage and the fan footage. I hadn't seen a lot of that stuff before.
Yeah. Well, let's talk about the story a little bit here because, um, you know, it is kind of a Citizen Kane-esque tale in terms of a reporter. Again, Arthur Stewart, played by Christian Bale, witnesses uh, Brian Slade, who's played by Jonathan Rhys Myers. He witnesses his assassination, his alleged assassination. Um, and then it cuts to him in a newsroom, basically being told, kid, you're on the story. Hey, Mr. Rock and Roller, get yeah. busy. And <laughs> and it's it's the 10 year anniversary of of his assassination, of his of his alleged death. Go find out. Go talk to people. And then it's a stylized back and forth between uh, Christian Bale interviewing people from his past, managers, ex-wives, uh, other musicians, and putting the puzzle together. I think Tony Collette, as uh, Mandy Slade, was, oh, yeah. if you've ever seen any of that footage of Angie Bowie, she nails it. An American yeah. putting on a really posh British accent. <laughs> I mean, one of my favorite things in that Ziggy live movie is when she comes backstage, she's like, oh, darling, they're all lined up around the block. There's limos and mix here. And <laughs> yeah. like, wow, that is it's like the Madonna accent. You know, it's like, oh, you're British all of a sudden. Put on. Yeah. And I guess she had a lot of competition in terms of who wanted to be cast for this. And she sent a fax to Todd Haynes saying, I am Mandy Slade. Oh, cool. And he was like, Mandy Slade would do that. Like she would, <laughs> yeah. she would totally send a fax and, and yeah. bulldoze her way in. That's, this was pretty early in her career too. Like this was probably one of the first times I had seen her in something, you know, when I, this was probably, yeah. If I saw this in high school, I hadn't seen cause hereditary hadn't came out and stuff. So she didn't sort of have this resurgence that she's had, but she's great in this movie. Yeah. She's pretty amazing in it. I really don't know a lot about Angie Bowie. Do you? Do you? Know well, her? I only know the rumor that the song Angie is about her. Right? Is that confirmed? Is that a rumor? I believe that's confirmed. Yeah. Um, but I found out that she had a really strange life post Bowie too. I mean, she wrote a book about her her life, but she like eventually auditioned for the role of the wonder woman television movie not the series oh wow <laughs> but um and she didn't get it it says here newsweek hypothesized in 1974 was the issue that angie bowie lost the role was because of her refusal to wear a bra <laughs> and then in 75 she bought the television rights to the marvel characters uh black widow and daredevil and oh, wanted and wanted to develop and sell them as a series with the two heroes. And she wanted to play Black Widow. Um, and the series, you know, fell through. It never went past the developmental stage. Um, and then she reinvented herself as a journalist. And that's what she's mostly been doing is specializing in gender issues. And she served as uh, what she calls herself a roving reporter for uh, Frock Magazine and other publications. So I was kind of, it was kind of interesting because I just thought, I just don't know whatever happened to her besides being in that Stone song. Yeah, I didn't know any of that. I think she, you know, with Bowie was really the person who helped with 
the the look of the costumes and applied the makeup and really was the one there. And I think they kind of get that a little bit in her character um, and Tony's character, uh, Mandy Slade, in terms of her helping Brian feel comfortable in in these in these clothes. Totally. And, and that's an important part of like for me, when I came out as being um, non-binary and then trans and stuff, I had a partner at the time who was like that, like, oh, let's hear you put on my dress or I'll do your makeup or do your hair or whatever. And that I know other people too like that now who their partner sort of or their they have a close friend or something it sort of serves that purpose for them as a as a trans woman. Uh, and that's like that's, I think, something that maybe hasn't been shown in movies a lot either. That's the thing about this movie is I, you know, there's a lot in there for the queer community that I think still rings true to this day. Um, and so I think that's part of the reason why I want to talk about it is like, um, I don't even know if a lot of my friends have seen or heard of this movie, like all of my queer young LA comedian friends or whatever, but I feel like they would be really into it. You know, I feel like it's ready for a TikTok reevaluation or something. Like everyone, and I really liked it too, but like the big movie is Barbie, right? And that has a lot of queer and feminist stuff in it. And I think that that's great for young people to see in the way that this is great for young people to see. So, you know, that's kind of what I'm trying to get at, I think, is like, if we're going to show them Barbie and then maybe if they want to, uh, do a little 180 after then they can watch this after and have kind of an interesting double feature of self-discovery those films that you see when you're younger that are transformative um, are important but as a fan back then seeing something like the films of Todd Haynes he already had such a an energy and attitude with his films and I loved that you could tell he was very close to the material and very passionate about this. This wasn't like somebody making the CBGB movie yeah. where you're just like, have you ever right. heard punk rock? Have you ever heard the dead boys of the Ramones? <laughs> like, why did you make this right, movie? Right. There's only one chance to tell it. I think yeah. that if anything, there's just almost too much going on in this film for for a narrative thread yeah for it being experimental of course it's got to have an orgy sequence in it it's got to have one you know and those are always i forget what song the what songs the orgy set to i forget oh i don't know how to look it up but it's i think orgy films are really hard to pull off in movies they always yeah. feel like the actors like somebody just has said action right <laughs> and they're well, like it's like dance scenes too dance scenes are like that too like uh if people are dancing in a club in a movie or something, if you ever look at the extras, they all just look so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it's a disconnect. I mean, I think, you know, obviously Short Bus by John Cameron Mitchell, it's, that's a real orgy and the cameras are rolling. Yeah, and him too, like, I'd be interesting to hear his thoughts on this movie because I feel like this and Hedwig share some similarities in terms of what they're about. And yeah, and they, I, you know, I think that those two filmmakers were sort of in the same class as well. And um, yeah, I, 
and then Todd Haynes went on after this, and then in Far From Heaven, that has the whole gay subplot with Dennis Quaid. So just his commitment to showing this stuff, or or John Cameron Mitchell's commitment to showing this stuff on screen and not being scared of it, I think echoes the sensibility of these artists of that time who are who are doing these things and not scared to show it or talk about it. Yeah, and I think John is similar in the way that he made Hedvig. And he told me that he was getting all sorts of offers to make another film like it or a children's mm -hmm. film, like a Willy Wonka type thing, a fantasy thing. Because, um, you know, that film is also very visually intense. Yeah. And he was like, I want to make a queer X-rated um, Cassavetti's film. Mm -hmm. And... He was like, that was always my goal. My next film was always going to be this. I'm going to get this one made, and then this is my dream project. And that was Short Bus. Mm -hmm. And he gave me this script before um, they'd shot it. And everything that was in it, I mean, it was imp improvised, and they took the material, and they created the stories around it. It was all there, everything. And, oh. you know, I just love that he stuck to his guns yeah, and when you were talking about um, Todd Haynes being so committed to this project and, you know, like being so 100% in, I think that that shows in both what you were saying with the short bus script and with this script and how detailed it is. Yes. You can just tell that they have, they had this clear vision in their mind from day one, and it's just about how to execute it. If you haven't seen the film and you heard me describing that scene in your head, you picture it one way. Right. But seeing what they made, it was all there. You know, they knew exactly what they wanted. And it was just like cracking their head open. And and yeah, Short Bus was very much the same way where everything that was on the page just ended up on the screen. And um, but it was hard to see it exactly like John did stylistically. Right. Until you saw it. And then you're like, oh, yeah, of course. It's, that's what sets them apart is that they're the only one who knows what that's going to look like, you know. When you read scripts of some of your favorite films and then yeah. you see the film, you're like, how did it get from that to this? Where'd they get the energy? What, how'd they, right. it's like the script is kind of like lies there. Right. Totally. But then some scripts like, uh, like the Magnolia script or the Big Lebowski script are like basically word for word, every punctuation point is there, which is crazy to me as someone who's made films to be able to, I wasn't even able on my short film to get it word for word, you know, much less this giant production with a million other things going on. It's, I, it's a level of auteur driven cinema that, is more rare nowadays for sure sometimes it's frustrating when you see like a coen brother film and you read the script and you realize that or a bowie exists or a lou reed or yeah right. you have to just be like okay they're just there's so few of them they're just they're they're aliens on the earth and you know right and it's the, it's the necklace it's the passing on of the necklace on uh, in the movie you know that's the the special thing that only a few people have. And um, I know sometimes you have to just kind of be like, oh, well, they have a level of God-given gift that most people just don't don't have. And 
it's i can't be jealous of it because it you know it's against it, it, we have no control over that right no the 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 arc of the green emerald brooch uh going through the the different characters and being handed down um mm -hmm. i thought was pretty thoughtful i thought it was pretty pretty good device um kind of much better than the newspaper report thing yeah it was kind of like the necklace was like the rosebud of this movie yeah right? exactly it was a harder thing to grasp on the modern day arthur um compared mm -hmm. to the the 10 year previously um arthur right. um who i did love that anytime they want to make someone look young they just put a bunch of rosy cheeks on them like <laughs> like oh my my yeah. my cheeks are burned i'm young <laughs> I'm, a I'm a teenager yeah or yeah at least they didn't just put him in like a baseball hat or something yeah there is a run of ken russell-esque energy in it especially with eddie izzard who plays the manager they'll just have really interesting choices where it'll just take you out of something that is very documentary feeling and all of a sudden it's eddie izzard in a black theater space mm -hmm. and a desk just pointing upwards you know and the camera follows them up and that's yeah. it now we're on to this the film has so many setups and so many vignettes mm -hmm. and um that i also don't know how they did it with this budget as well it's really ambitious it is yeah i i, I think if it would have been made today it would have been like a six or eight part mini series probably but that's the thing I love about it and what I love about movies like it, like these overstuffed, ambitious movies that have so much going on is that I don't want a movie where I see it one time and I feel like I got everything. And because then what's the point? I'll never watch it again. I got everything. Right. Right. But if these movies like, you know, a lot of my favorites, this Mulholland Drive, Magnolia, Under the Silver Lake, all these ambitious sort of divisive tour driven pieces i find are the movies that i can keep going back to over and over and over because every single time i'll discover something new or a new part will become my favorite or a new part will speak to me uh you know like now if i if i rewatch this movie now i'm listening for all the roxy music stuff instead of when i saw this when i was a teenager listening for all the t-rex stuff you know so it i i just think it's really cool how there can be a movie like this that that not only can help shape the audience, but can grow with the audience as well. And that's what kind of makes it a successful music movie, because what you've described is not unlike uh, your favorite record is rarely the thing that you understood on first listen. Exactly. You just had to lean into it and understand it and, and get a bigger picture of it. And a lot of my favorite records were not on the first listen, something that I thought would be right. something that I would go back to so often. Hey, I even had that with um, Eno and Roxy Music. Like, I remember, I don't know if you have ever had this, but if your parents played a song a lot when you were a kid, you hated it. But then like 10 or 15 years later, you hear it and you think it's the best song you ever heard. I feel like that happens so much to me, especially with music of this era. Well, I had a really weird childhood that I didn't know about uh, until I got older. 
in terms of music. My mom was an artist and head of an art department at a college, and my dad was an architect. Um, and they were super into Fripp Eno, No Pussyfooting, Can, um, yeah. craft work. Yeah. I I didn't like that music at all when I yeah. was a kid because yeah. I wanted to play Devo, Wall of Voodoo, The Residents. Yeah. I was like, I want something with some energy. I don't want this like droney long. Uh, and then, you know, you get to a certain point as a teenager where you're like, I think my dad has a Velvet Underground record. Uh-huh. I think. Or a shirt and you want to wear it to school. Yeah, yeah, it was funny. Yeah. Well, a lot of it too, I think, is uh, for me, uh, weed. <laughs> well, tell me about that. <laughs> no, I just think that a lot of that kind of music sounds uh, maybe uh, hits you different if you're on a certain substance. Yes. Um, rather than being like a six or seven year old child, but being like an adult person who's uh, <laughs> really stoned, <laughs> it can be very different musical experience. No, I think if I was six and was into no pussy footing and was like that album changed my life. <laughs> yeah. I would be in a cell somewhere. Yeah, right. You would you would probably you'd be one of the one of the people with the brooch like in the movie. Yeah, I totally. I would I would just be uh, on a flying saucer somewhere over uh over Manchester. Um <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the basically there's a, a figure in it is it Tommy Stone? Right. I was going to ask you about that, too. Yeah. Um, who is this mysterious character that may or may not be Brian Slade post-assassination 10 years later? And I guess um, I I feel like that was really clunky. To me, that was the part of the film that didn't yeah. really it didn't really pull it off. Oh. Um, I get what I get what they were doing. Yeah. I think there's a reason for that. And I think that I think uh I was reading about the movie today and uh Jonathan Reese Myers said that that was his problem with the movie too, but his problem with it was that they used different actors for um Slade and Tommy Stone. If it wasn't they're both the same actor, which I think I don't know. It's interesting to think about. Oh, that's what I was going to ask you. Do you think it would have played better if it was the same actor? Yeah. Yeah. 10 years is, is it's doable. Right. I agree. Ewan McGregor as Kurt Wilde looks the same. Right. He, he's not, he doesn't have prosthetics on. Which leads me to believe that it was a choice by, I mean, obviously it was a choice, but like, I'm sure that he thought of them being played by the same actor and then was like, no, let's not do that. So I wonder what his reasoning for that is. Maybe to throw the audience off the scent or something. I'm not sure. I think so. I think that just to make it uncertain, you know. Right. Um, yeah, because, if, yeah, if it was the same actor, then everyone would know the whole time and that whole entire mystery would be destroyed, right? Yes, correct, correct. But that is interesting. I do think that that part is maybe, but also that part sticks with me because it's so weird. No, it is. It is weird. Like for him to, I mean, the, just the idea of that whole thing is very odd. And I think the execution of it is odd. So it really puts you into a sort of uncertain 
mindset and it's kind of the thing that the movie puts you back out onto the street with so i think that that is maybe part of the reason why it is divisive or confusing is um it doesn't resolve necessarily the way that you think it will or want it to basically the last third of the film is is pretty uh it's it's downer it's more of a yep. downer right. it definitely has more of that feeling of maybe leaving a 70s film where all right Jack Nicholson and Five Easy Pieces has just gotten to a truck and driven off. Right. We're we're not supposed to get this all wrapped up. Or the or like the ending of Paris, Texas or something. Exactly. Something a little bit more poetic and uncertain and ambiguous. Yeah, definitely. And you know, the fact that you do have remembrances of Arthur um and his time with Kurt, the spaceship and the green, you know, emerald brooch, all this stuff kind of comes back together to kind of give a bit of a heightened fantasy ending um, right. for the film. It's very stylistic, but it, it's interesting because at a certain point, I just was like, I don't care if this guy was assassinated or not. Yeah, it's yeah. just like, there was so much to tell. I agree that it, I agree. I, and that's why I think it would have been like six or eight hours. If it was, <laughs> yeah, they're probably, if it was eight hours, that that whole subplot probably would have been like uh, the movie JFK or something, you know? I wouldn't kick a, a Tommy Stone plastic child's mask, you know, out of my life. I in the film they're around. I always wonder what happens. Like who has I those props? I know. I wonder. I because yeah, is that stuff all just sitting in a warehouse in Reseda or what? If I was the director, I would have it on my wall. I'd be like, this is the one thing I kept. Right. The Tommy Stone child's mask. I've certainly been to. Uh places where the person has kept less cool stuff than that <laughs> <laughs> well we kind of touched on it a bit but it seems like the film is overstuffed but is there anything that you if, if you had made this film that you would have maybe approached differently probably not honestly i mean this movie is so formative to my sensibility as a filmmaker and creative person that i it's hard for me to say I'd do anything differently because most of the stuff I do is based on what he did. Like in your in your film, for instance, or? Yeah, my, my short film was uh, early 70s and big focus on texture and color and um, dreaminess and haze and fog and all of these things that I think Todd Haynes is all of this impressionistic film work with music and editing and that's all stuff that I really am inspired by um even in my film so I guess yeah if I were to do it differently probably I would figure out the third act a little more but I don't know that I would be able to do it any I, I'm not saying I would be able to do it any better than he did you know but maybe you could make the greatest orgy <laughs> scene you know ever made there you go there was a so I'm reading Brian Eno's diary right now, the year of swollen appendices. And there was a quote in it where he talked about Oscar Wilde and comedians. And he said, um, why are, why are Wildean wits so miserable in real life? Perhaps cynicism is not a containable talent and ends up extending to oneself. So 
and then goes on to say, the only person I knew with a wildian wit was deeply miserable and a serious alcoholic. But what is the connection? Is it that they are not just acting out the cynicism that forms the base of wit, but showing how they real, really feel, which is totally cynical? What makes for good humorous is an ability to slide between frames of reference unexpectedly and to misapportion value to them. And I feel like, and then the last part of it is, Perhaps there are people who can't help doing it and who really can't make any convincing decisions about the relative value of their different possible references. So I take that to mean, in the case of Todd Haynes or with me, we have all these concepts and ideas about things that we know are incorrect or weird or strange, but instead of being like, those are weird or incorrect or strange, we're going to express them through our art. Um, so I thought that that was really cool that Eno talked about that in the book, knowing that we were going to do this podcast, because it kind of combines all of those things into one world. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about all of this. I'm I'm really excited that we I got to delve with someone who was very passionate about a a movie versus a documentary that is musically based. Yeah, totally. I think it, it's such a different way to looking at things. Um. At the end of every episode, I ask the same question. They're always framed a little differently. Okay. On a scale from one to 10, with one being the lowest and 10 being the highest, and this is referring to a scene in the movie, how many lines of coke off the ass of someone do you give this film? <laughs> um, hmm. So on that scale, I would say maybe the movie Casino is a 10. <laughs> and then a one would be like um oh what would a one be maybe uh maybe like in a pitch to pong where a sickle movie or whatever, like uh, uncle boon me or one of those movies where wow one of those movies where the director is like yeah you can fall asleep during my movie i don't care oh that is a deep cut yes <laughs> so deep i don't even know how to pronounce his name but uh, yes no, and so okay, so if that's the scale, then I would give this maybe a eight and a half. That seems very reasonable. I think this movie has that sort of uh, kinetic feeling of a Scorsese movie. So if there was to be, if there was to be that in this movie, I think it would be like a big uh, dolly push in or something during. Yes, <laughs> definitely. And Tony Collette going. Baby, yeah, yeah, yeah. The... Don't run away, baby. Come on, come over here. <laughs> totally. Although I think I just did a Brooklyn accent versus a British accent, but you know. Well, that's how her voice probably should have sounded if she hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an actor. Uh, well, thank you so much, Max. It was great seeing you. Thank you. This was a delight. It was a great, great to uh, meet uh, virtually, and uh, yeah, hope to see you around. Thank you for listening to Revolutions Per Movie. We release new episodes every Thursday, so be sure to search for the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the show. And if you've enjoyed this, it would mean a lot to me if you would rate and review it as well. You can follow us on social media at Revolutions Per Movie and also find out more information about our various guests in the episode show notes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Bye! <laughs>